Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. The neoliberal consensus, once thought to be undefeatable, seems to have been broken, both in the wake of the fiscal crisis of 2008, as well as a series of surprise movements and elections throughout the world in the last several years. But many scholars argue that it remains alive and well, just in a changed, mutated form. This is the theme that motivates the recent anthology, Mutant Neoliberalism. Market Rule and Political Rupture from Fordham in 2020. The book features 10 essays by a cast of writers covering the ways in which neoliberalism is mutating to stay alive in a changing environment. With me to discuss the book are its editors, William Callison and Zachary Manfredi. Callison is a visiting assistant professor of government and law at Lafayette College, and Manfredi is an equal justice works fellow at the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project. Uh, so, Will and Zach, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Um, so, before we dive in, can you two maybe introduce yourselves a little bit and maybe talk about how this project kind of came about? Yeah, so um, my name is Will Callison. I did my PhD uh, uh, in political science at UC Berkeley, where I focused on political and democratic theory, critical social theory. Uh, the history of political and economic thought, and um, I had a focus on the evolution of different schools of neoliberalism in my dissertation. And um, uh, Zach and I met at uh, at Berkeley. Um, we were both we were both uh, PhD students there, and kind of pass it on to Zach, perhaps. Yeah. Um... Like Will was saying, we met at Berkeley. Um, I am still a PhD candidate in the rhetoric department there. Um, and, and, you know, I broadly work on sort of you know, human rights, political theory, uh, intellectual history, um, and law in particular, um, as well as the neoliberalism's relationship to um, those different um, uh, disciplinary areas. And so, we, you know, we had, we had organized a conference actually back a few years ago um, on related themes to ne- neoliberalism. And then um, sort of the, the events of 2016, the political ruptures in part that um, we talk about in the book's introduction, um, sort of intervened as we were thinking about what to do with the post-conference schedule. And that in part led to us really trying to work with the contributors here to develop a volume that responded to sort of ongoing political upheavals and transformations and really rethought what was going on with neoliberalism um, at this particular sort of uh, political conjuncture. Um, and was a way, I think, for us too, who are sort of faced with very live questions in our own work, um, to ask people to reflect on the state of the world and sort of give answers that we thought were um, at least not really um, uh, present in the current or existing scholarship otherwise. And so that sort of that led us to the volume. And we were very lucky to get um, the enthusiastic contributions of such an incredible group of scholars. Yeah, you have a really kind of all-star cast lined up. So to kind of dive in, um, to begin, there's kind of this common consensus that emerged in the wake of particularly the elections in 2016 uh, and Brexit 
and a host of other kind of upstart movements, that the neoliberal consensus that has guided the last several decades of public political discourse and policy is now dead, only moving along in this kind of undead, zombified fashion. Um, this book takes a slightly different metaphor to understand the situation, that of the mutant. Um, and you write in the introduction that unlike the image of an undead zombie, mutants are new life forms seeking to survive within changing environments. So what exactly do you mean by mutant and what are you trying to get at with this metaphor? Yeah, so um, perhaps first, as a segue to the the figure of the mutant, I, I could say a little bit about um, neoliberalism in particular, whether for, for newcomers or um, those more familiar with the concept. And in a sense, neoliberalism began as a mutation of liberalism itself, and um, especially out of economic liberalism. In the wake of World War One, the the previous order was kind of crumbling with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Soviet Revolution was taking power to the east, and socialism was on the rise across the Euro-Atlantic. And so, throughout the 1920s, capitalism was undergoing a series of crises, culminating with the Great Depression. And in this context, a group of scholars began to defend and rethink the tradition of economic liberalism which is also to say uh, the entire order of liberal capitalism, and also to hold mass democracy at bay. So the, the kind of fear of the masses and of um, expanding democracy, both in terms of uh, the vote, but also uh, beyond the vote, just in terms of the threat of different um, uh, social movements that were democratically uh, mobilizing. Um, and what these scholars did was meet at the Walter Lippmann Colloquium in Paris in 1938, and they founded the Mont Pelerin Society in Switzerland in 1947. And though they did share um, a great deal with classical liberals like Adam Smith, there was also some fundamental differences between liberalism and what um, only some of them were now we're calling neoliberalism. And what most of them realized, having observed the success of state planning during World War I and the goals of socialist planners around them um, in the early interwar period, was that markets weren't necessarily natural or self-sustaining in the absence of certain political and legal structures. So uh, on the one hand, they drew from new theories and methodologies, such as um, the marginalist theory of Austrian economist Karl Menger, and on the other hand, they realized that institutions needed to be actively constructed. You can just let markets be laissez-faire, um, but markets needed to be actively fostered and guarded by the state. Um, so in this sense, it was a kind of constructivist uh, project from the start, responding in a sense to the constructivism of uh, socialism or Keynesianism. And with this idea um, you see the neoliberals crafting new concepts like the strong state, which needs to set the rules of the game for property rights and economic uh, dynamics generally, and to serve as what they call the guardian or the umpire of the market, only intervening minimally and in the promotion of competition. So not to, to um, uh, protect uh, economic actors, but to uh, force them to compete as it were. So 
um, while all the neoliberals were attempting to form this kind of practical alternative to oppose the influence of socialist and increasingly Keynesian planning. And we should kind of underscore that this was very a very kind of um, small and minority project in comparison to um, the power of those movements. Uh, they were designing uh, different approaches to monetary policy in the state, uh, conceiving the state as a planner for competition, as, as Friedrich Hayek once called it. And um, they were generally united in this mission, but it's important to note that there was also a lot of debate between the neoliberals um, and different traditions of neoliberal thinking that emerged. You could also kind of say that this was uh, a mutant neoliberalism from the start, or there were a lot of different uh, strains. And these included the Austrian school, Mises and Hayek in particular there, the Freiburg School of Order Liberalism, including Ropka, Eucken, and Erhardt, um, the Chicago School, Milton Friedman famously, Aaron Director, eventually Gary Becker, and the Virginia School, which included uh, James Buchanan and Gordon Tulloch. And historically, they, they, um, they were developing ideas, but they were really first put into practice, um, which many don't realize, by the Ordo liberals in post-war Germany. Um, but then you, would, you see the rise of neoliberalism as a kind of anti-Keynesian project in the 1970s with the stagflation crisis and the crisis of Keynesian, Keynesianism. And uh, in the 1970s, you have the, the coup against um, or uh, against Salvador Allende of Augusto Pinochet in Chile. You have the election of Reagan and Thatcher in the U.S. and Great Britain. And you also have the design of the reform of international uh, economic institutions like the IMF, the WTO, and the World Bank. And so together, these are generally called neoliberal developments that oppose Keynesian planning and full employment, and they prescribe uh, supply-side economics, as we now call it, um, so-called trickle-down tax cuts for the corporation for corporations and the wealthy. Um, they generally prescribe the removal of tariffs and the deregulation of trade. Uh, the privatization of publicly owned industries and goods, and the maximization of shareholder value, and uh, obviously the disempowerment of labor unions. And so these neoliberal developments ran alongside what some scholars call financialization, and maybe we'll talk about that later. But this kind of leads us up to the financial crisis of 2008. And with that, I'll pass it to um, Zach to address the, the question of the, the mutant we're now witnessing today. Yeah, so um, I think what your question really asked you is why um, we chose the mutant metaphor and sort of the point of contrasting it to the, the zombie metaphor, which had been prevalent, I think, in a number of um, scholars and commentators' um, analysis of neoliberalism's fate um, in the wake of the, the uh, financial crisis. And so I think for us, um, I'll say a few things and sort of give a little bit of context to, to understanding where the, the zombie metaphor came for, for folks who maybe weren't familiar. But I think both in the wake of the, the, the financial crisis and then again, sort of um, in 2016 and sort of the advent of the rise of far right political forces, um, both uh, thinking about the, you know, as sort of exemplar events, the, the Brexit referendum and then the Trump election, there was a lot of scholarly commentary that basically said, you know, oh, neoliberalism is dead. This event repudiates it as an ideology, as a political program. Um, and, you know, now something else is going to return in its wake. Varying d- 
degrees of that argument, but you saw it in a lot of different places, in particular among sort of the left, saw different articulations by like Cornell West, Nancy Frazier, Naomi Klein in the wake of the, the Trump election uh, in particular. But so what we had seen is sort of fo- for folks who um, were critical of neoliberalism as scholars, um, they sort of had posed a question, which was basically, you know, now in the wake of these sort of events, which seem to in various ways have sort of um, repudiated neoliberal um, neoliberalism as a political project, um, why nevertheless had neoliberals um, still continued to retain positions of power and continue to sort of promote their agendas, philosophies successfully um, as the means by which you responded to crises, which arguably uh, were the product of their own making. Um, and so that's where the zombie metaphor kind of took hold. You can look at, you know, um, Colin Crouch's work on the non-death of neoliberalism or Jamie Pack actually talking about zombies. And there the neoliberalism is sort of figured, we thought as kind of, um, you know, almost like a lifeless corpse or an ideology, something that's animating the body of these thinkers, but is really no longer a living organism, a dynamic process, a, a, a sort of world making um, force, um, but rather something that's kind of, you know, persisted beyond the period in which it should be alive. Um, and we just thought, despite the value that we find in a lot of the scholarship and commentary, that that really wasn't doing the work of tracking um, the kind of developments we were seeing um, from our own scholarship and scholarship of others uh, of uh, contemporary developments within neoliberalism and across the, the sort of the political spectrum of different neoliberal actors. And so the mutant for us, I mean, it is a metaphor um, uh, exclusively, but um, sort of did the work of trying to account for the contemporary dynamics of neoliberalism in a different way. Um, and so a few things we emphasize with the mutant is, is one, um, mutations are transformations at the level of an organism's DNA usually. So that means they are potentially fundamental transformations. They're significant. They can constitute a form of reordering and the core principles of a, an ideology or program. Um, but nevertheless, mutants are still members of the species to, from which they originated. And so there's um, a way of thinking both change and continuity at the same time um, through the mutant metaphor. Um, mutations also sort of play a critical role, at least from a biological perspective, um, sort of post darwinian thought in the evolutionary process. Um, and so if there's a mutation, it may or may not become a sort of more adept version of a species and allow it to um, thrive or persist in an environment um, and or maybe not. And so I think what we wanted to suggest is, you know, this is a helpful way of thinking um, about actually the contemporary landscape of neoliberalism and different neoliberal political actors, because you actually sort of have a proliferation of different sort of ideological, political formations, some with different neoliberal ideas. And there remains sort of an open question as to, you know, which of these forces, which of these configurations is going to become a dominant one, the far right iteration sort of versus more, you know, canonical third way neoliberalism. How are they going to play out? Who's going to become the dominant member of the species? Will it die out? Under which conditions might that happen? Um, And so the mutant really allowed us to sort of theorize and think through that critical problematic while emphasizing sort of the dynamism of neoliberalism, I think, as uh, as a as a force in the world to this day. Um, So maybe I'll I'll leave it there. Yeah, that's a great introduction. Um, Further in the introduction, you talk about how um, often there are three traditions that are used to study neoliberalism, Marxism, Foucauldianism, and anthropology. Usually when scholars study neoliberalism, they pick one and argue it's the best way to study the topic. You kind of synthesize them in this book. Um, So I guess the question is, when bringing them all together and using them together, what sort of new or unexpected results 
does one get that a single approach on its own wouldn't be able to get to? Yeah, so that's a, um, a great question. Uh, I think that with an interdisciplinary book like this and um, with you know many different interventions uh, in it that are uh, kind of moving into a growing literature on neoliberalism, uh, we were thinking about um, kind of what's, what kind of overlap uh, between different theoretical perspectives are, are, are found in the book. And we thought it would be productive to kind of parse them out as different ways of theorizing neoliberalism. And as you mentioned, we discussed um, kind of three different paradigms of theorizing. Uh, and these are Marxist, Foucauldian, and anthropological approaches to, um, which all kind of in different ways shed light on uh, different dimensions of neoliberalism. And you know, to begin with Marxism or post-Marxist theory, there's a very big tent with a lot of different traditions already within, within it. And uh, this paradigm generally conceives of neoliberalism uh, as a kind of acceleration or intensification of capitalist development. And in the work of uh, David Harvey, for example, neoliberalism is considered the latest phase of a process of capitalist restructuring, uh, one that's driven by a top-down ideological revolution on behalf of international capital uh, in its search for new sites and techniques of accumulation by dispossession. Uh, and so whether you look at Marxist state theory, uh, kind of uh, in the tradition of Poulancis and uh, Jessup, or world systems theory with uh, Wallerstein and Origi, or critiques of racial capitalism, uh, including Bembe and others, there, there are a lot of approaches that uh, generally designate neoliberalism as a kind of stage or a phase within a longer historical arc of capitalist expansion. And the accounts inspired by Michel Foucault, these Foucauldian accounts that we discuss, uh, by contrast, have, have emphasized a more dispersed character of neoliberalism, um, looking at its shifting discursive patterns, as its signature forms of governing at a distance, both through and beyond the state. And these theorists have, have made use of Foucault's notion of subjectivation or subjectivization under neoliberalism, uh, which is to say the ways in which subjects are constituted as uh, particular kinds of agents, um, particularly economic agents as self-investing human capital um, or as homo economicus, which is a concept that sure we'll, we'll talk about more in, in a second. Um, but overall, the Foucauldian approach is, is kind of more of a supplement than a corrective to the Marxist approach, we suggest, I think, in the introduction, since it highlights transformations at a more granular level. And, and finally, and perhaps even more granular, we discuss the contributions of anthropological theorists to studying neoliberalism. And we also talk about uh, these as kind of ethnographic approaches that are modes of situated theorizing or situated theory. Um, and these are able to simultaneously think through and uh, trouble more systematic modes of analysis while also uh, tracking new developments from below. So new concepts, new affects, identities uh, that emerge through embodied practices uh, under neoliberalism. But really, ultimately, we suggest that these three paradigms are, are conceptual heuristics, that they overlap in different literatures, 
including um, uh, many or perhaps even most of the chapters uh, in, in our book in that it depends on the kind of objects or that one is examining or the kind of questions that one is asking uh, just, just to see how they can be productively uh, utilized um, alongside one another. I think I would just add briefly too that you know from our perspective, um, what we wanted to do in in characterizing the different theoretical approaches in the introduction was sort of draw out some of what we thought were the key methodological virtues of different approaches, um, and not suggest that they are in fact um, you know necessarily intention, even though there may be substantive disagreements between folks um, who ascribe to different um, theoretical paradigms in particular, and so just sort of to create a way or an, or at least an opening for folks who might be new to the topic to sort of think um, with these different paradigms about how to approach contemporary um, you know, examples of neoliberalism and to be able to draw from a broader theoretical toolbox um, in doing that work um, without sort of preemptively, you know, picking a side and what maybe in some ways is an artificial um, um, set of theoretical uh, disputes or disagreements. Yeah, so... Um, kind of moving into some of the main essays, one of the first things that gets brought up is Wendy Brown's essay. Um, uh, in her contribution, she writes, um, for Hayek, markets and morals together are the foundation of freedom, order, and the development of civilization. Put another way, the attack on society and social justice in the name of market freedom and moral traditionalism is an emanation of neoliberal rationality, hardly the invention of political conservatives. So this is something she has kind of explored in her own work. I also think of Melinda Cooper's uh, work as well. Um, but can you kind of unpack how is it that neoliberalism's emphasis on freedom has gone hand in hand with more restrictive moral values throughout the last few decades? And what are some of the changes happening now under kind of late mutant neoliberalism in this respect? Right, so that's a, a, a great question. Um, I think to begin to answer it, um, perhaps we can begin with one account that now is is fairly common, and that's um, that neoliberalism constitutes a form of rationality or reasoning that seeks to economize every part of human life. And this conceives of the human being as an instrumentally rational actor that maximizes her or his utility um, a self-responsible entrepreneur who needs to maximize her or his human capital. And in this view, democracy, public goods, and a variety of social institutions are not really ends in themselves, but inherently suspect because, um, or if they're not organized by market logics. Now, um, this view isn't wrong per se, since it roughly or you know, more or less uh, reflects much of what Friedman, so Milton Friedman and Gary Becker as, as economists say, but it's certainly incomplete and, and lacking in a certain respect in capturing the depth and diversity of what the neoliberalists were up to in theory and what we've kind of historically seen in practice um, uh, by uh, neoliberal policies and, um, and reforms. And so I think that after writing Undoing the Demos, um, Wendy's contribution is both kind of incorporating, as you mentioned, uh, Melinda Cooper's uh, 
study in family values, which was on the kind of the marriage of uh, neoliberalism and social conservatism um, in the latter half of the, the 20th century. And, um, and I think Wendy's also supplementing part of this account and part of her previous account with a reading of the neoliberals and a kind of analysis of the, the Trumpian or post-Trump um, election context. And, and her chapter in the book is a kind of shorter version of what she argues in, in her own new book. And for that reason, I think it's kind of uh, a very concise and probably useful chapter for teaching. And in it, she argues that the world after the 2016 election is not one the neoliberals in their text necessarily wanted or prescribed. But if you read their text and if you, you observe their actions closely, you can see the, the present is a kind of product or outgrowth of part of um, their overarching logic. And this is because they not only pushed an order of radically free markets and a radical libertarian notion of individual freedom. Um, they were also attacking visions of, of justice, social justice, of collective freedom, and of society writ large as kind of unrelenting threats to their own vision of freedom. And we can kind of recall, as one always does and perhaps always must, uh, Thatcher's um, uh, attempt to uh, transform uh, the soul, and while claiming uh, that there is no such thing as society, only individuals, and then the second part of that phrase is crucial, and their and their families, and so the way to kind of secure individual freedom against so-called social justice warriors and social engineering, as Hayek uh, termed it, was by also embracing moral traditionalism or um, this idea of Western civilization. And there are a series of kind of related uh, kind of culturally conservative notions, um, both in Hayek's vision of cultural evolution and in um, other parts of the neoliberal tradition and in other people who have kind of picked up Hayek since then. Um, and part of your question, uh, if I recall correctly, is kind of what are examples of this, this marriage or of this mutation in the present? And I think that in... So beyond uh, Trump or a kind of parallel to Trump is what we're witnessing in Brazil with uh, Bolsonaro uh, and the election of Bolsonaro is a kind of far right uh, presidential candidate who promised to marry international capital with um, evangelical Christianity and also to kind of um, uh, get support and weave in the middle classes into this project just kind of responding to um, crisis in the country, um, also other right-wing revolts around the world. And uh, what you see there is a kind of radical discourse that was, um, from, the, from the very beginning, anti-socialist, anti-indigenous, uh, anti-feminist, uh, obviously xenophobic and, and racist as well. And... Um, at the same time, he was kind of launching this kind of discourse attacking so-called uh, gender ideology um, in, in schools and attacking the specter of cultural Marxism. Uh, he was also um, putting into power uh, certain neoliberals in his own uh, administration, including Paulo Guedes, 
who is a self-described Chicago boy and student of uh, Milton Friedman, and he uh, anointed him the 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 minister of what I think was called um, the like a super a super agency of of finance in the state. And he told uh, Guedes to privatize everything. This was the kind of mission. And so there you kind of see um, in, in quite, uh, yeah, emphatic form, um, one instance of, um, of the logic that I think we're getting in Brown's chapter and that we're also witnessing um, in, the, in the Trump administration. I think that part of the analysis of Wendy Brown is that uh, after neoliberalism privatized public goods and undermined notions of social solidarity for decades, um, but this is also through right-wing politics, uh, or this was not just right-wing politics, but it was also through the New Democrats and the New Labour um, in the UK, uh, the SPD in, in Germany. There was a kind of double prescription that emerged. Um, on the one hand, a disinhibited notion of individual freedom, um, which is often kind of emerges in quasi nihilistic uh, notions of an absolute right to do what I want and to say what I want, not just despite, but aggressively in spite of others in society. So a very kind of reactionary um, um, uh, impulse uh, that kind of is inscribed in this notion of freedom as well as a notion, it's kind of paired with the notion of family, tradition, culture, and even race to a nation, obviously, to shore, shore up whatever is kind of um, left or whatever uh, exists beyond uh, the market here. And so the rise of anti-democratic movements and ethno-nationalist sentiment was kind of both through and an effect of um, neoliberal rationality in, in Brown's account. Um, and I think I would, you know, to your question, sort of asking about um, what changes we think are still happening and are being anticipated in relation to sort of a mutant version of neoliberalism today. Um, you know, I do think there are a lot of ways in which the alliance or sort of between social conservatives and traditional neoliberals that Cooper documents um, and that Brown sort of lays the theoretical groundwork for understanding the work of neoliberals um, you know, you see, I think it's alive and well in a number of places um, and at the same time is also um, simultaneously potentially being challenged or converted or sort of contested in different spaces. And so one example, you know, we might give is, I think, actually quite interesting and Brown writes about this. And so does um, Reva Siegel in a, in a sort of different register, but the role of conscience uh, based claims or exemptions to things like anti-discrimination law um, and um, healthcare requirements, you know, um, the ACA cases where you have sort of religion and private morality claims being used to then sort of uh, create exemptions to economic regulations that would otherwise have sort of a generally applicable effect and in a way sort of serves or coincides with a kind of neoliberal deregulatory agenda, sort of preserving a space of market freedom. Um, through the notion of a kind of uh, religious um, or moral commitment um, that needs to be exempted from these other regulatory forms. Um, and so I think that's kind of a, that's an interesting example to see and to see how those kinds of claims develop. Um, I think you see a lot, you see other lines of fracture here. I mean, um, as well, there are certain um, ways in which 
um, the evangelicals are it's sort of uh, maybe, and there maybe some of this over exaggerated, but uh, uh, uncertain about what to do about the you know the current platform of say the Republican Party is commitments. You know, you had Christianity Today condemning Trump, but then you had other evangelicals coming out and saying um, that they supported him, and so I think the the nature of this of the sort of moral commitments of different sort of formations of neoliberalism today are themselves also sort of being contested and reshaped. And you would have to think about the relationship between sort of more historical forms of kind of um, social conservatism and it's sort of moralism deeply racially coded around welfare um, and other politics and sort of new, um, you know, mass far-right movements around sort of immigration exclusion and xenophobia and and whether and how those forms relate to one another, I think is an interesting question that we'll continue to see um, play out in the role of different um, neoliberal projects today. Yeah, so moving on, um, much of the history we're now being told about neoliberalism's implementation involves it being done kind of by elites behind closed doors, making these kind of silent hegemonic changes without the will of the people. And this is true in some ways, but it's not the whole story. And Soren Brandes points this out in his essay, The Market's People, which looks at the way neoliberal thinkers used mass media to achieve these kind of large-scale hegemonic victories. Um, So this gives neoliberalism a kind of weird relationship with populism simultaneously relying on it while also remaining heavily elitist in certain respects. Can you kind of unpack this relationship between neoliberalism and populism? Yeah. um, So Soren Brandis' chapter centers on the economist Milton Friedman and the birth of what could be called uh, neoliberal populism or market populism. And by the end of the chapter, you're able to see why uh, this relationship um, is a really important thing to think about and how also how it's related to um, what we just discussed in uh, Wendy Brown's chapter. Um, so Brandis discusses an image and a chant uh, that became a huge part of Donald Trump's campaign uh, for president, namely uh, drain the swamp, drain the swamp. And um, the idea there was that Washington, D.C. is a a swamp. And the idea comes from Steve Bannon, who uh, in an interview with Charlie Rose defined it. And here I'm just going to quote from the chapter uh, really quickly. Um, The permanent political class as represented by both parties. The swamp is a business model of donors, consultants, lobbyists and politicians. And, the, and seven of the nine wealthiest counties in America ring Washington, D.C., unquote. So what, um, what Bannon is arguing in brief is that a populist leader is needed to come in and drain the swamp uh, of corrupt bureaucrats that, that live in the swamp. And this is an anti-government vision that makes a native, nativist appeal to workers along uh, racial and nationalist lines. And uh, Bannon suggests, and or he fam- famously described this mission at CPAC as deconstructing the administrative state. So kind of the question here to get back to the relationship is what does this have to do with the story of Milton Friedman? And I think that 
White Brown, Brandis does not suggest that Friedman himself would have been very fond of, of Bannon, but the image of Washington that he articulates uh, turns out to be quite similar. And this is an image that Friedman himself, uh, arguably, and I think that Brandes uh, suggests suggest, um, that Friedman helped to create. And, well, there were, there were many, I guess there were, there are accounts of neoliberalism that kind of see these intellectuals as engaging in a kind of secretive plot that they were feeding ideas to politicians like Reagan and Thatcher kind of behind the curtains. Um, and perhaps not all of that is incorrect, but what Brandis is pointing out is that part of this is faulty because it ignores the prominent role that some neoliberals had um, in extending their ideas and in taking part in public life. And he points out that Friedman's career really took off um, uh, as a public intellectual, and one interesting part of this career was um, a TV show that he he made uh, called Free to Choose, and which is obviously the the name of um, a book that he co-wrote with his his wife um, as well. But this TV show, Free to Choose, is is um, is really kind of worth um, uh, studying in its own right and. And Brandis's chapter is a pretty spectacular work of history and of kind of media studies because it reveals how the narrative and the imagery of the show uh, work to oppose kind of day-to-day market interactions of individuals um, against the burdensome, ominous, even oppressive structures of, of government. And, and so the chapter includes images from the show, kind of screenshots, of massive government buildings in DC, which were very intentionally represented as the opposite of individual freedom and as kind of um, an active threat to individual freedom. And in this way, there's a parallel between the image of government buildings and free to choose and the idea of DC implied by drain the swamp. In Friedman's case, um, what results is a vision of the market as the true and the only site of freedom. Um, it's what he calls, it's what Brandis calls uh, a form of market populism. And I think it's a pretty brilliant extension of Stuart Hall's conception that, that many are aware of, that Thatcherite neoliberalism was itself a form of populism, namely an authoritarian populism. Um, at the same time, it captures, Brandis is capturing um, in new ways something that the neoliberal movement kind of affected. Uh, So, and I think that I can just kind of to speak a little bit from experience here and beyond the chapter, when I teach Friedman's book, uh, Capitalism and Freedom in my introduction to political theory courses, it's really remarkable how quickly students not only just understand, but identify with this idea. And really in ways that Friedman himself in the text doesn't, formulate in these terms. So the the idea is that freedom belongs to the people when the government gets out of the way, when the market is allowed to work. And you kind of uh, see this kind of language even in uh, their papers or their exams, the the idea of freedom resting in the people, that in the market, 
the market is the site of the people and it's also the site of freedom and that government is its opposite. And it's obvious that, um, or I guess worth noting at least, that this is a very curious understanding of the people, the people being normally being associated with uh, a demos or some type of collectivity, whereas uh, the market is not that. And of course, most of the neoliberals, especially Hayek, uh, did not want the market to be that per se, to be an entity, um, a political entity. It was precisely a positive thing, the market, because of its uh, anonymity and its um, uh, its inability to kind of be uh, captured in in particular in this particular way, but I think the appeal of this idea, this kind of anti the anti government um, philosophy that was not simply developed by Friedman um, in his work, but also through this kind of very public interventions, which weren't just um, uh, the TV show, but also his role in uh, the 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 um, anti-tax revolts in California and these kind of referenda in the 70s. Um, this uh, understanding is articulated very clearly, and I think we're living in a world that uh, really reflects the success of that project. Yeah, so one of the next things that comes up is the topic of austerity. Um, and neoliberalism is kind of famous for its austerity. In the last several decades, um, might give us the impression that austerity is a right-wing ambition. Uh, Melinda Cooper and others kind of challenge this narrative. So how have far-right movements generally related to austerity? And what are some kind of recent shifts going on with the radical right's relationship to austerity, both an idea and as a policy? Yeah, so... Um... Melinda's chapter is really, I think, very fascinating in terms of both the historical exposition of sort of um, far right uh, resistance to austerity politics and other elements of neoliberal monetary and fiscal policy. And in sort of its exhortation to, um, I think, left thinkers who are interested in challenging neoliberalism to take seriously um, the work of some of these far right folks and come up with, um, you know, uh, alternatives or rival theories that would do um, that would also challenge sort of these elements of neoliberal policy. So in, in terms of context, I think one of the things that, you know, Melinda opens the chapter by saying in the wake of the financial crisis, uh, we have observed that um, programs of resistance to fiscal austerity um, are perhaps just as likely, if not even more so, to come from far right political forces than um, certainly liberal or, you know, centrist uh, or ostensibly left um, political parties. And so I think she asked this as an open question to say, well, then what is the nature of this resistance? In part, because we, as you suggest in your question, often tend to think of uh, right-wing movements as somehow being, you know, um, deeply aligned with all elements of neoliberal practice, sort of functionally um, capitalist in their general orientation. And I think Melinda says we have to complicate this picture and really understand these details. And so she, uh, maybe it's, it's helpful to sort of look at the historical arc of, of her chapter's argument. And so there she really um, wants to understand sort of a longer legacy of some of these programs. And she actually looks back fascinatingly to um, sort of Nazi um, era fiscal and monetary policy um, 
asking what ways did that policy sort of um, exist as a response to austerity, as well as the threat of deflationary economics and the problem of Germany's repayment of um, its wartime debt. And you can sort of, you know, if you're interested, draw parallels to the ways in which the EU and the euro might have functioned similar to the gold standard in those contexts. There are similar concerns about austerity, debt repayment, and things like this. And so I think what Cooper really does is to show us that um, there are some genuine ways in which these right-wing political formations, both historically and sort of in contemporary form, um, do in fact offer sort of genuine challenges to some canonical elements of neoliberal monetary and fiscal policy. So, you know, he's talking about Viktor Orban in Hungary, canceling foreign debt exchanges, nationalizing private pensions, um, Marine Le Pen's proposal to sort of um, limit, um, to sort of, uh, you know, help the Bank of France be able to increase public spending through purchasing treasury debt. And I think there are, there are ways in which it's important to take seriously, as she suggests, those programs, and then to theorize sort of what is the kind of underlying ideological basis of the form of political economy that these right-wing movements are advocating if it isn't um, just neoliberal in any straightforward sense. And one of the things she does there is to sort of define fascism um, deriving it from her ex- analysis of the Nazi context as uh, a theory of political economy that um, hopes to overcome the threat of deflation without in any way affecting the existing distribution of social resources and goods. And there she characterizes it um, in more detail as sort of, you know, a um, deeply racialized and gendered theory of social reproduction, which endeavors to sort of um, affect the benefit of certain groups while not um, obviously, as I said, redistributing, but also even sort of affecting a kind of um, extermination of surplus elements of the population that it doesn't want to be um, the recipients of the various benefits that uh, it's trying to orchestrate through these kind of um, monetary and fiscal reforms. And so I think Cooper's analysis is really compelling. It forces us to think critically about sort of the nature of some of these far-right movements um, in more detail. But it, at the end of the day, I think is really, more than anything else, an exhortation to left political forces and actors to take seriously these challenges, to understand the ways in which they have um, been able to sort of articulate a ground that is at least ostensibly adversarial to some um, neoliberal uh, political programs, while perhaps being... Um, deeply influenced or sort of um, perpetuating other elements of, of neoliberal political programs um, and issuing a challenge really um, at the level of sort of, you know, theorizing monetary and fiscal policy for the left that would be a genuine response to sort of austerity programs as well um, and wouldn't give sort of the these far-right forces, especially in the European context, a kind of monopoly on this form of alternative political economy. Um, and I just think it's a fascinating chapter. It's, you know, we contrasted it to other approaches, other neoliberal approaches as well in the introduction, like um, libertarian Bitcoiners and things like this. And so, but I think it offers a really startling place of reflection and really forces us to think critically about um, the ways in which austerity has been resisted by which actors and how it might be resisted in the future. Yeah. So moving on, um, there's a common consensus that the EU is a major element of the neoliberal project, a way of connecting and expanding various markets together. Um, and there are elements of truth to that. Um, but this thesis has recently been complicated, especially with the recent election in the UK, where many early commentators are claiming Brexit was one of the key determining issues 
that may have swayed the election away from Corbyn towards Johnson. So can you unpack the more complicated relationship between neoliberalism and the European Union? And how does the history of this relationship kind of help us understand the recent election in the UK? Yeah. So as you said, the the left has been developing a critique of the EU for for decades um, or, yeah, or longer, but especially after the failure of social democratic parties to to shape the supranational institutions along the lines of what was called and what is still still sometimes called a social Europe. Um, Instead, really in the 1990s, you have... uh, um, and beyond, you have the, the Maastricht Treaty and the Lisbon Treaties, which place debt breaks uh, or prohibitions on so-called excessive de- deficit spending uh, into the economic constitution of the EU. And then there's also uh, the um, the common currency and the, the ECB, which a lot of leftist uh, critics focus on. And I think all of this um, for good reason. And that's why leftists, including Jeremy Corbyn, um, have been critical of the EU, even if many of them, or at least some of them, uh, held out hope for reforming it. And some of them still do. And that reform would be in a more social or socialist direction. But what's kind of less known uh, about um, part of this history is that many neoliberals were themselves becoming skeptical of the European Union. Um, uh, out of a fear that it could indeed become a mechanism of enacting redistributive and pro-labor social policies. Um, and, it's, and it's a very kind of interesting um, and, and a rather mess, messy history because at the same time that some people uh, claim that uh, the U is modeled on an essay uh, by Hayek and others argue that it's modeled on um, uh, the, uh, the political economy and institutions prescribed by uh, Walter Eucken, a German order liberal thinker. So some people talk about the order liberalization of Europe uh, as a kind of authoritarian, uh, an authoritarian liberalism um, uh, that uh, has a kind of uh, radical anti-democratic aspect uh, at its core. There were also neoliberals who were very nervous about um, building such supranational institutions because what would happen if the left were to capture those institutions and to kind of uh, recode their, the, the constitution in, in a leftist direction. And this is precisely this messy history is what Slobodian and Pleva are looking at in their chapter. Um, and they specifically focus on neoliberal intellectuals, um, think tanks, and advocacy groups who became first very Eurosceptic in the early 1990s before then championing uh, secession and or exit from the EU altogether. And in this way, they were for some time kind of laying out the intellectual case um, for Brexit decades before the, um, the Brexit referendum. And in particular, uh, Slobodian and Pleva are uh, in this chapter examining the 
institution or kind of groups like the Center for the New Europe, which is uh, which is based in Brussels, but also influential in Britain. Uh, the Bruges Group, which was named after uh, Margaret Thatcher's famous speech in in Bruges in uh, 1988. And in that speech, uh, Thatcher said, and here I'll just kind of pull my uh, text and kind of read from the beginning of their chapter. Uh, Thatcher said, quote, we have not successfully rolled back the frontiers of the state in Britain, only to see them reimposed at a European level with a European super state exercising a new dominance from Brussels, end quote. So already uh, in that passage, you can see uh, kind of the outlines of a neoliberal case for criticizing and exiting the EU. And that's precisely what uh, the Bruges group um, uh, kind of uh, was founded and uh, worked towards um, over the past several decades. Uh, Additionally, in, the, in, in this chapter, Slobodian and uh, Pleva are looking at the founders of the far-right populist party, um, Alternative for Deutschland, the Alternative for Germany, or the AFD. And uh, this party began first as an anti-EU or anti-Euro uh, protest party, and it evolved into an ethno-nationalist and a xenophobic force. And here they're uh, beyond um, Germany, also Austria, they're tracking some connections between these actors and libertarian figures that are often associated with the alt-right in the U.S., such as uh, Murray Rothbard, Hans-Hermann Hoffa, um, who combined free market libertarianism with a racially driven anti-establishment uh, populism. Um, I think that just kind of... Um, both in, in this piece and in relation to what Zach was just talking about in, in Melinda's piece, you, uh, well, there's a lot to learn and there are a lot of kind of tensions between these two pieces because we're both seeing part of the European right kind of being successful in, um, in putting together anti-austerity uh, programs and kind of mobilizing people against austerity. We're also seeing part of um, of the the far right, and here we can call it the neoliberal far right, um, putting together pro austerity uh, and pro um, explicitly pro neoliberal uh, programs. And what um, Cooper notes also in discussing uh, the chapter of Slobodian and Pleva is that there are tensions that are kind of working themselves out in in uh, these far right parties at present. So even though you have um, parties like um, the, the Liga party in, uh, in Italy with Salvini um, kind of pushing an anti-austerity uh, and kind of Eurosceptic project uh, there, there are also places, there are, there are places where the neoliberal nationalism, as you could call it, um, is, be, is quite successful, including in Germany. But even within Germany, there's a conflict that Cooper notes and that um, Slobodian and Pleva, I think, are working on separately in their own work. Uh, and that's a tension within the party. On the one hand, you have the ordo-liberal wing of the AFD. And on the other hand, you have a part of the, the party, which is based in East Germany, 
um, and kind of uh, led by a guy named Hooker, who and who is like much more explicitly Nazi in his uh, rhetoric and his outlook, and much more anti-austerity and anti-neoliberal. And so we're kind of, uh, I guess, in between these two chapters, we have uh, different accounts of. Um, both the contestation of neoliberalism and the mutation of neoliberalism that's really ongoing. Yeah. And I would just, I mean, since the end of your question also sort of asked us to maybe address this in the context of the most recent UK election, um, I, I would just add that with with the caveat, of course, was that, that there are many complexities of that election, and I don't think this is really the place for us to speculate, you know, why labor lost or or what were sort of the inevitable um, conditions um, or sort of the inevitable outcomes of that, of the long political process there. But I think what the analysis here really shows is that um, despite the fact that, you know, um, Brexit, I do think played to and on real fears, anxieties, um, and sort of highlighted the material, um, you know, consequences of the, some EU policies for, um, a number of working class Brits, it was nevertheless, um, you know, was still engineered in a lot of ways initially by folks who themselves were deeply committed to neoliberal principles and not necessarily actually advocating it uh, as a means to sort of, you know, reinvigorate working class um, well-being or other or power within the state. And so I think that shows you sort of, you know, and what we highlighted is, you know, just because something is a potentially a political program that seems to be opposed to an ostensibly neoliberal institution or program that doesn't mean that it's not um, that opposition isn't in service to sort of a further or radical or other kind of neoliberal um, uh, project. And so I think that just produced a very difficult set of circumstances for left political actors to kind of negotiate and navigate whether they should be remainers or not and what were the conditions under which they could sort of articulate a left vision for exit, perhaps, you know, the Lexters really, I think, were in a difficult position. And it was very hard for anyone to articulate their own vision without sort of falling into some of the traps or that had initially been set around sort of the, the, the movements, precisely the Slobodian um, and, and Blow's chapter highlight uh, that were sort of laying the original framework for Brexit. And so I think, if anything, as Will said, it just kind of highlights um, the challenges that these actors face in sort of navigating a complex field of different neoliberal political formations today um, and the, the fact that it's going to continue to be a really difficult challenge um, and one that I think um, is not going away um, anytime soon. Yeah, thank you for that addition. Um, moving on, um, this next question kind of synthesizes a lot of what we've been talking about. Um, Michelle Fair's essay, um, in it he writes, uh, to quote him a bit, Neoliberal reformers realized that time-honored liberal principles, such as the right to vote and to form an association, were responsible for the illiberal evolution of Western societies, namely the stifling encroachment on the economy of welfare programs and militant labor unions. Yet, since they were reluctant to call for sacrificing democratic institutions in order to preserve free choice, they argued that the redemption of liberalism depended on the conversion of all economic agents to the outlook of profit-seeking entrepreneurs, from corporations and public institutions to workers and even the unemployed. So there's a lot to unpack here, but one thing it does bring to the forefront is neoliberalism's complicated relationship with democracy. So can you kind of unpack 
the historical and theoretical relationship between neoliberalism's market freedom and kind of the anti-democratic ideas kind of lurking in the background? And how does it kind of connect to more modern impulses on the far right? Um, It's a great question. As you said, there's a lot there. I think um, one way, the way I might start entering into this is to talk about two things um, within sort of Thayer's broader uh, uh, argument or sort of framework for analyzing neoliberalism that I think are helpful. So the first thing is Thayer really develops a contrast between what he calls actually existing neoliberalism and neoliberalism in theory, which is, of course, a riff on sort of the, you know, actually existing socialism was a discourse during the Cold War meant to sort of highlight the failures of attempts to implement socialism in practice. Um, and what Fair says here, I think, is, is very helpful because he shows that, you know, um, actually existing neoliberalism, as he called it, often produced a world unanticipated by the architects of neoliberalism um, who had sort of these different anti-democratic sentiments and, you know, the many forces that they didn't anticipate, such as financialization, which Will talked about, um, in some ways, uh, sort of transformed subjects and institutions in ways that they um, probably would maybe would not have necessarily approved of. And so just to give context and sort of an extension of the quote you had before, I'll read a little bit of what Fair says in terms of describing what the actually existing world of neoliberalism is. Um, so Fair says, you know, pro-market reformers purported to create a world where capital owners, wage earners, and even the unemployed would envision their lives as profit-seeking businesses calculating the cost and benefit of every decision, what financialized capitalism actually bred are credit-seeking portfolio managers, primarily concerned with the appraisal of their assets in the form of both material and human capital. So I think that's important to understand broadly as a framework, sort of those differences that FAIR is laying out. Um, And then second, sort of applying that framework in practice, as your question suggests, um, there are a number of sort of, you know, Will laid out in the beginning the fact that neoliberalism was sort of seen as a response to anxieties over um, democratic political sort of takeover and how that could affect the ability for markets to continue to function the way neoliberals hoped they would. Um, but as you correctly note, and as Fair says, you know, a number of the explicit aspects of what we think of as democratic um institutions, free choice, representation, things like this were um, not the direct attacks often of neoliberal reformers, but instead they sort of thought, I think, to to kind of produce anti-democratic sentiment, both at the level of really remaking subjectivity. So thinking about how to get individuals to internalize a kind of um, model of economic behavior, um, as I said before, supplemented with certain forms of moralism, but that would sort of uh, build in um, this kind of resistance to a sort of democratic uh, forms of political economy and socialist organizing um, in general. And there were other ways in which they tried to do this too, obviously, um, at the supranational level, creating sort of limits or breaks on democracy. Um, and, you know, we could, uh, Quinn Slavodian's work, obviously, in, in Globalist highlights this um, in international institutions. And so I think, um, at least in that sense, you sort of Um, can see the ways in which uh, the anti-democratic principles of neoliberalism often worked out sort of um, differently than anticipated by neoliberals in practice, but were not always straightforward in the sense of being willing to say, you know, we want to end democracy formally in these these states, but rather we want to create the conditions where the risk of democratic control and organizing 
uh, is muted or mitigated in relation to um, their, the principles of market rule and um, uh, the kind of economic programs that we want to see. And so it was in some ways a subtler set of transformations, but also in some ways maybe a deeper and more pernicious one as well um, that um, FAIR is trying to track. I don't know. Well, I think you could probably want to add to that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. To, to add to that and to address the part of the question about the, the combination between um, free market ideals and the rise of the, the far right, I think one particularly interesting move that FAIR makes um, in, uh, in the conclusion of his chapter uh, in this book, but also um, uh, elsewhere in, in his writings, is um, this argument that we need to understand the rise of the far right and of far right populism not as merely a reaction to the dominance of speculative finance, but also as an emanation of its of its logics. And here he he kind of is both making um, a theoretical move that's kind of combining some uh, Foucauldian and Marxist elements as well as a kind of historical reading of, um, of uh, different um, uh, political periods over the past kind of four decades. And he points out that the globalists of the 1990s, um, including Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, uh, were arguably the first to assume this task of enhancing the, the, the human capital of their constituents. So, for example, the, their welfare to workfare or their welfare to work programs um, and the easy access to commercial loans um, that they put into place uh, largely kind of purported to improve the employability and the solvency of, of citizens. But now, decades later and after the financial crisis and under um, precarious conditions um, of a so-called gig economy, the the subject and the logic really of self-investing human capital has taken a kind of perverse twist. And in a way, Fayer argues that nationalist leaders are urging their supporters um, to really experience their, their native status, um, the color of their skin, the gender norms they uphold, uh, kind of their cultural traditions as valuable assets in their, their own right. And this is a kind of peculiar, um, but I think very insightful reading of, um, of kind of uh, techniques being used on the right. Um, and we might consider just as an example, what Steve Bannon calls uh, the citizenship value of Trump's populist base. Um, and, and here you can kind of see how right populists might conceive of themselves in some sense as the largest suppliers of creditworthiness, which Michel Fayer argues is really the, the logic of contemporary neoliberalism. Um, uh, and this, this notion of creditworthiness is not simply uh, a kind of financial understanding of the, the term. There's also an emotional and affective and, of course, a gendered and racialized sense of, um, of the term as well. But if you're kind of thinking about whether you're credit worthy, whether you're, uh, whether you're valuable from the point of view of uh, society, 
um, you can kind of conjure up the ways in which um, this kind of devaluation of certain uh, or perceived devaluation of certain um, parts of the citizenry can become uh, kind of um, can lend itself, let's say, to far right projects. And uh, at a at a general level in the in the EU, um, what Bayer's chapter is looking at is how this logic of creditworthiness is is driving not simply kind of uh, the logic of political parties, but also migration policy in particular. And he's looking at the um, his chapter is called uh, "Disposing of the Discredited." And here the idea is that uh, migrants and in particular refugees are seen both by um, many in society and in particular by governments and by the EU as uh, subjects who are lacking creditworthiness. They're not valuable from an economic point of view or from the point of view of this particular uh, political project. And so there are many different ways in which um, institutions uh, like nation states and like the EU then try to dispose or expel or in some case um, uh, terminate uh, or at least abuse uh, these kinds of um, these kinds of subjects and what Michel Fayer does is look at a lot of different cases of how um, the EU has kind of been working uh, to towards this pro- uh, project of um, at least, if, if not disposing actively, then kind of um, ignoring and neglecting uh, immigrants who are seeking this, even but not only in, in, in the midst of radical crises in their, in their home countries, um, uh, seeking to um, reject their entry or to make living conditions really terrible because they're not seen as um, worthy of, of a different or proper treatment. But I think there's also a way in which in the chapter, which is looking at Europe and then extending the chapter, which uh, Michelle does at times to, uh, to the United States, he's also talking about a financial sense of, of creditworthiness. So you can see how Donald Trump has earned support from some of his constituency by valorizing their portfolios by kind of um, talking about uh, endlessly, of course, about the economy, but um, pushing forward tax cuts for billionaires, uh, market deregulations, um, uh, deregulations that help the fossil fuel industry and that destroy the environment, but promise some short-term benefits uh, for uh, the oil and gas and mining industries. And this is happening um, all while Trump and, and others like him are, um, are kind of making appeals to native, or I guess nativist supporters who seem to be kind of quite grateful that, um, that they are, or that they can stand by a kind of flag waving and gun carrying white male, or that simply this ideal of the white male or white male supremacy is once again in uh, 
in popular discourse and by at least for certain political movements, a truly valuable asset in, in this larger sense of the word. And kind of just to kind of one less, to add one last thought here, um, I think it, this has a lot of different implications for the left. And one of the main focuses of the chapter is kind of how we um, should analyze uh, anti-immigration politics and also respond to it. And one lesson that Fayer kind of addresses to the left is that kind of staking our resistance to financial capitalism on reclaiming national sovereignty and, and kind of turning in a, in a nationalist direction is, is very likely to be more beneficial to the extreme right than to the left. Um, and this is because it entices the left to boost its populist cred- uh, credentials um, kind of simply by venturing into nationalist terrain on issues of um, immigration and a certain kind of idea of the people and of um, a left project as simply being or necessarily being kind of um, national or nationalist in in its uh, in its character, and though the prospects at times kind of seem somewhat bleak in Europe, I think that luckily Bernie Sanders has recently rejected this strategy. Strategy, I think entirely. Um, but uh, even as we see in these debates, um, the Democratic Party has kind of responded to uh, to Trump. But as we know the Democratic Party uh, doesn't have a very good history um, uh, or kind of, yeah, uh, it doesn't have very good credentials um, on this particular topic. So this is very much a kind of um, live scene of political debate and uh, an intervention. And I think that Fayer kind of helps us navigate that terrain. Yeah, so... Moving on, one of the essays that really kind of surprised me or caught me off guard was Julia Eliakers. Um, I think I pronounced that right. But um, she talks about how a lot of the theories of neoliberalism were initially developed um, kind of alongside the development of early 20th century uh, comparative anthropology. So in what ways did these two fields um, kind of adopt each other's ideas and how are they kind of informing each other and how does that influence continue to affect discourse around neoliberalism today? Yeah. So Julia's chapter is, is kind of tracking the emergence of neoliberal ideas and particularly the idea of tacit knowledge to some degree, also the idea of spontaneous order um, from the earlier 20th century uh, and these debates uh, at the time into more recent developments, um, uh, kind of much of her work as an anthropologist is, is centered in Egypt, but she's also looking at kind of how um, these developments register in uh, the corporate world of kind of multinational um, companies. And what she explains in this chapter is how kind of after the bloodiness or even the barbarism of World War One, there were wide-ranging debates about the nature of the West and about the meanings of rationality and irrationality and about how to distinguish the civilized from the savage. And she shows how early neoliberals equated socialists with savages and kind of put them in what the um, 
uh, anthropologist Tuyot called the the savage slot um, because of socialist you know attempt to overthrow the free market uh, price system um, without which the neoliberals uh, believe that rationality itself could uh, could not exist. Um, the chapter kind of centers on Mises and Hayek's interventions uh, in the socialist calculation debate, though she kind of also departs from there. And um, this debate and both of those figures are also a central focus of, of my own work and were a part of my dissertation. And I think that what Julia is showing um, about uh, Mises and Hayek and kind of the intersection between economics and anthropology is that there were two nascent disciplines in interwar Europe that were participating in the same debates over markets and planning and their rationality. And while the neoliberals railed against socialist economics, she um, discusses how anthropologist uh, Bronislaw Malinowski was writing up his um, influential ethnographic study of the people of the Trobriand Islands. And according to Malinowski, the, the ritual modes of exchange on the island were not irrational as, um, as Mises or Hayek would have it, but rather constituted a different and non-market economic form of rationality. And so in this way, Malinowski was contradicting central claims of the early neoliberals. But in a way, nonetheless, early neoliberalism and early economic anthropology were part of a shared discursive field. Um, another interesting thing uh, that uh, Julie is doing here is to follow Hayek's notion of tacit knowledge, uh, which was also kind of um, an intervention into psychology and economics. Uh, from an earlier period in a post-war uh, organizational and management theory in corporate America. And uh, what she discusses there at the beginning of the chapter is that after the fall of the Soviet Union, some anthropologists, um, as it were, rediscovered tacit knowledge in embodied learning practices outside of the market. And they identified it as a potential source of market value in the age of big data. And so this is important, I think, um, because it shows, on the one hand, how the neoliberals constructed their own project as a civilized antidote to leftist, uh, as they called it, savagery. And it also reveals how, and I, and I, and I think this is a kind of very uh, live strategy, just to add myself, um, of the uh, neoliberals and that would be kind of a subject to, to talk about at length, um, perhaps not here. But, um, and, but on the other hand, it also reveals how these neoliberal critiques of um, rationality were also embedded in a particular context and have been used uh, in many different sites and in many different ways from Europe to Egypt, as she shows in her own work, to, um, to multinational corporations today. Yeah, so moving on, uh, a lot of criticism of market rationality has focused on gender, um, arguing that it idealizes a rational male and depends on subservient female labor. Leslie Salzinger offers a more complicated view of how masculinity 
relates to work and markets. Um, how does she see that connection working and what implications does it have for thinking critically about free markets? So I can tackle this one. Um, so I really, uh, Leslie's chapter, I think, is um, really brilliant in a lot of its insights. Um, what she does is to sort of look at a number of different um, sort of scenes of neoliberalism and interrogates the way in which uh, different sort of notions of masculinity are encoded um, within that theory. So she does so both looking at the um, text of Foucault's work on homo economicus and sort of the underlying neoliberal theories that it's studying, but also looks at her own um, ethnographic research, uh, looking at stock traders and trade desks in Mexico City and New York to sort of see how enacted practices of masculinity and particular discourse of masculinity um, function in those contexts to produce kind of neoliberal um, rationality and neoliberal um, economic uh, programs. Um, and so one of the things that Salinger does is she sort of, I think, building on sort of long-term feminist arguments about sort of the exclusion of certain forms of labor, um, like domestic labor or effective labor from consideration um, because they're often coded as females, looks at sort of homo economicus as a figure who is described as being fundamentally and deeply rational, self-interested, and in many ways um, idealized as self-sufficient. And I think what Salzinger does is to show the ways in which that conception of homo economicus presupposes a set of social um, background conditions um, in which there are other forms of labor or care work support that might be going into the production of that subject um, which are sort of written out of the account or ignored. She talks about even how, you know, key neoliberal figures um, talked about mothers as this weird figure who sort of um, has to be sort of an exception to the homo economicus paradigm because she puts the self-interest of her offspring ahead of those of her own homo economicus position and how odd this kind of assumption about um, that figure is and what ultimately its larger relationship to neoliberalism might be. And so in some ways she's doing work of sort of critically interrogating and unmasking sort of the gendered assumptions behind homo economicus and the notions of social reproduction that um, neoliberal thinkers have sort of championed. At the same time, she's also, I think, demanding that we interrogate the historical practices of uh, masculinity and neoliberalism um, a bit more critically. And there she's showing how, you know, notions, these notions are sort of um, transformed over time and looking at the idea, for example, of testosterone and hormones as being a form of, of uh, gendered discourse um, and how that in some ways differs from other more traditional notions of gender that is associated broadly with bodies or sex difference. Um, but thinking then, you know, you have these traders at these discourse saying things like be a man or, you know, you need to have testosterone or this sort of thing in order to take risks in sort of in their um, engagement with financial markets and these sorts of things. And I think Salzinger shows both how a certain conception of masculinity is really essential to the functioning of those markets uh, in the particular way that they do function. And, and But she at the same time is offering sort of a critique of the way in which the gender discourse around testosterone and masculinity was used as a mode of explanation for um, the financial crisis itself. So there she says, you know, look at all these reports that say, oh, too much testosterone, this produced the risk, this produced all these other um, bad outcomes. And I think what she wants to question is the way in which that mode of explanation actually does account for um, how um, 
the financial crisis occurred, how neoliberalism works. And she, in particular, is also critical of a sort of kind of feminist, even if I don't know if she would even call it that necessarily, but a kind of response to the financial crisis and neoliberal programs that emphasizes gender in a different kind of essentialist way, suggesting that women... Um, if if we you know uh, embraced Aleman sisters or uh, women centric business models, that somehow we would avoid the excesses of neoliberalism, neoliberal rationality. And I think what she's saying is actually there's a possibility that these forms of sort of gendered accounts of women and women's role in the economy are also covering up the deeper relations. Um, of masculinity and femininity that are at stake in reproducing neoliberal political economy. And in a way, they're providing an excuse sometimes for the perpetuation of, you know, um, neoliberalism's broader sort of market principles or reforms by saying, you know, well, if we just got the gender relationship correct, then it would be fine to sort of live in a world of high risk financialization um, and, you know, maybe austerity or debt controls because women would do the job of writing the ship. And I think this, you know, Selzinger is deeply suspicious of that form of gender essentialism too, even as she's also, um, critically unmasking sort of the, the latent, um, uh, masculinist assumptions behind neoliberal discourse. And so it's really just, it's an incredible chapter. It's doing sort of multiple things, I think, at once. And is really, I think, in, in towards the end in particular, demanding the, uh, in the context of our, you know, broader mutant metaphor, that we pay attention to these new sort of ways of articulating gender in relation to neoliberal political economy and, and kind of demanding a more um, critical scrutiny of those um, rather than just saying, ah, yes, um, feminist neoliberalism is is the antidote um, to the excesses of testosterone. Um, so it's really fascinating work. Yeah, it was a really interesting chapter. Um, moving on, uh, in looking at the various failures of neoliberalism, especially in relationship to innovation's inability to provide the results that it always promises, uh, Chris Newfield writes, the mystery is the following. Why does the failure of neoliberalism produce more neoliberalism? Uh, can you kind of unpack both why or how neoliberalism fails in this view? And why does this failure kind of lead to a doubling down on the failing ideas rather than changing course? Yeah, this is a, a great question. Um, Chris Newfield comes at this, this question or this paradox of, of neoliberalism's failure breeding more neoliberalism uh, through an examination of the university and specifically, specifically the, the global research university in the context of uh, capitalist globalization and kind of capitalist transformations over the past um, several decades. And I guess I should add first, for those who don't know um, Chris's work, uh, Chris Newfield is uh, kind of a, one of many uh, kind of founding figures of a new field of critical university studies. And um, he's uh, he writes on a a really great blog that you should check out. Um, but with respect to this question in the piece, what he's arguing here is that if innovation is indeed a core neoliberal economic strategy, uh, the research university is a privileged site for its incubation and its practice. Uh, nowadays, most university administrators believe that the university's funding and fate depend on maintaining its reputation as a primary uh, 
uh, innovation source. And so they look to purge elements that do not uh, appear to fit that purpose. Um, uh, Newfield's chapter kind of begins with a fantastic bit of intellectual and business history, which focuses on uh, Clayton Christensen, the so-called Dean of Innovation Theory, who started writing books on the subject in the 1990s. And drawing from Schumpeter's model of creative destruction in different ways uh, in his earlier and his later career, uh, Christensen suggested that innovation can be given a broad definition in the business community, at least, and or in general, and that is putting a novel idea into use that creates value. And Newfield observes that when uh, implemented as a rationale of neoliberal governance, innovation effectively translates thought or intellectual capital into returns, which become financial capital. So uh, Christensen helped shift the corporate understanding of technical innovation from the steady incremental improvement to a market function aimed at disruption. And by the 1990s, innovation signified uh, an engine for disrupting and downsizing, as we know, everything to produce new goods and to produce economic growth. And by the late 2010s, uh, corporate America, healthcare, manufacturing, and the contemporary university have really all tied their uh, reputations to the delivery of innovation. However, uh, the imperative to innovate in higher education didn't produce the economic or educational results that were promised. Um, rather, tuition exploded, uh, salaries plummeted, uh, and the tech industry took higher education for granted as uh, innovation's archaic resource. And we've seen, of course, also, um, I can say personally on the job market, uh, and of the um, uh, terrible and kind of miserable results of the adjunctification of the university kind of in the process in which the, uh, the financial crisis, of course, didn't help at all. But what we're really looking at here is a kind of larger logic. Um, I think that it's also kind of interesting to look at uh, in places like Berkeley, um, uh, you know, from, from which uh, Zach and I hail, also Stanford, um, other universities that have invested heavily and sought to make connections with big tech, um, using big data, con uh, connecting up with venture capital, um, especially in the Bay Area. And I saw it on the ground just to kind of give one example in my own building, uh, which privatized uh, a previously open space on the top floor of uh, Barrows Hall, um, which used to be a place with like a sp spectacular view of the, the bay and the Golden Gate Bridge where we kind of hung out as graduate students. And now after um, uh, the university has kind of innovated and, uh, and uh, taken up this space, what it, it now belongs to is something called the social science matrix. Um, and it's a locked private space that isn't accessible to graduate students or um, anyone else for that matter anymore. And um, rather what it is, is kind of a, 
a space with for with a couple more classrooms or a very small conference space, and which um, exists as a kind of both um, place to host events, but also to um, administer certain kinds of projects, um, particularly to get external funding. And a lot of these projects are very uh, innovation heavy in their in their rhetoric and their orientation. And with regard to this this um, this project, a lot of or this matrix, uh, people at the University have complained that it absorbed a lot of the social science division budget, and it added a, an additional layer of bureaucracy for grad students applying for research grants. Um, and in, in addition, of course, it's taking up a space that used to be open to all, uh, and especially to graduate students, and is now completely controlled by a few administrators and a few people with, um, with, with fellowships. Uh, there's a lot more that's going on in Chris's piece. I'm not sure whether um, Zach wants to speak to anything else, but it's also kind of important to mention that in kind of examining innovation and, and the neoliberalization of the university, New Field is also looking and thinking, looking at and thinking about um, what a post-neoliberal university and uh, economy would would look like and how uh, people within the, uni- the space of the university um, can respond to this. And he kind of emphasizes that um, uh, a lot of this project was about demobilizing professional knowledge workers um, because their empowerment threatens the authority of administrators and managers. And he thinks that uh, we both need to respond to this process within the university, but it also responding to um, the process also needs to be situated within uh, a larger uh, context or movement of of labor struggle and political contestation, which um, uh, it needs to be part of kind of remaking remaking the economy more generally and. Uh, kind of lastly, he he, al- he also mentions that innovation is a is pretty m- mutable, and the way that we should kind of think about innovation, we should definitely be against or abolish, in his words, uh, disruptive innovation. But he also mentions that innovation is a pretty mutable um, concept, which has some family resemblances to ideas of creativity and invention, and that. It's not impossible that these could resonate well with left projects to to remake the university in accord with um, public and democratic values. And so I think that Newfield is giving us a way to to think about the neoliberalization of the university as a mutant project, but as a a project that's that isn't inevitable and that is um, uh, certainly uh, a site of ongoing uh, struggle. Um, yeah, I, I obviously agree with everything that Will just said. Um, I think I would add briefly just to return to sort of the core of your question, I think in part, which is sort of answering this, you know, why does the failure of neoliberalism produce more neoliberalism, which is in a way a question a lot of folks are trying to answer. And one that I think we're suggesting we're trying to, in the volume, answer differently than, you know, sort of the, the zombie crew of commentators and part of that answer. So I'll make two points that Newfield is giving is one is to say, I think it's a historically specific phenomenon on something about the nature of neoliberalism and 
the discourse around innovation in particular, that it looks at sort of destruction and failure as the impetus for its own perpetuation or um, reinvention. Um, and so it's precisely within neoliberalism's nature to say, are we in the context of innovation to say this thing was destroyed? That means we need to do more of what we were doing before to reproduce this process of creation, destruction, reinvention. Um, but in a way, you can sort of see how neoliberalism broadly is dynamic and adaptable um, and in a way takes its own, it's what are arguably, or I think left actors would at least attribute to be its own failings as the impetus for its expansion. Um, you could even make a parallel argument there in the context of the Brexit debate that we were having before earlier. You know, it's like if there were elements of EU policy which functioned as neoliberal in terms of their, you know, effects on the disenfranchisement of members of the working class through certain monetary and fiscal policy, nevertheless, neoliberalism, which may have helped inspire some of those changes in the EU, uh, created a more neoliberal response, which was to re-entrench state power in order to produce a more radical vision of a free market society, um, you know, that really is another instance of neoliberalism saying, aha, there's a failure, there's a problem. Um, you know, uh, the solution to that is a more intense or different or slightly um, re-articulated version of our own political program. And I think what we're really saying here is that, um, you know, you need to be attentive to the ways in which those dynamics play out in practice. And it's naive, I think, to assume that uh, the more neoliberalism that is produced is always sort of a straightforward um, repetition of what came before it. It might be dynamic, it might be adaptable, it might be um, destructive in new ways that you didn't anticipate. And that's part of what is particularly challenging, I think, about social movements um, that want to push back against neoliberalism and scholarship that wants to do so too, or their sort of political theory more generally, is that you really have to be able to account for the degree to which the 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 beast is capable of taking on new forms um, in order to preserve um, preserve itself in changing conditions. Um, I don't know if I want to, I could jump in and add more about the politics of Berkeley and the university, but I do think it's, it's safe to say, at least when you from Will's example, that you do see that dynamic at working there where, you know, decades of privatization, tuition increases at Berkeley did not produce the results that the university had hoped in terms of staving off crises related to state defunding of the institution. And yet, nevertheless, you see things like, we'll point out the social science matrix, but also these programs to bring in Silicon Valley and tech entrepreneurs to incubate um, projects at the university, which then, of course, the intellectual property for is given to, to those startups rather than the university or their students. So I just think, you know, um, you can see this dynamic work in a lot of different ways. Um, and that uh, something that, that, you know, um, you can't ignore if you want to challenge neoliberalism in a meaningful way. Yeah, I'm sure we could go on forever on this topic, but um, we'll move on. Um, kind of towards the end of the anthology, um, the topic of boundary starts to come up. Um, neoliberalism and capitalism more broadly has this kind of weird relationship to boundaries. Uh, this comes up in Megan Moody and Lisa Raffel's essay on feminism, neoliberalism, and the lines between the public and private um, and its imposition on family and gender. But it becomes especially kind of it comes to the forefront in Etienne Balabar's final essay on absolute capitalism. So can you kind of unpack this bizarre relationship to boundaries between different spheres that neoliberalism has and what consequences does it have for contemporary political discourses, um, especially given the contributions that you have around the generation and maintenance of new forms of subjectivity? Um. 
It's a great question um, and a complicated one. I think I will start to answer it by um, laying out sort of the foundations of what I think are uh, uh, Megan and Lisa's interventions um, with regard to the concept of privatization. So there, um, the boundary that sort of might be at stake is the division between the public and the private. Um, and what Lisa and Megan do in their piece is to say, um, uh, to observe, I think, that you know, traditional critique of neoliberalism even tends to assume the process of privatization as uh, a straightforward or obvious one in which public things, things that were previously public are made private and to sort of say this is in fact um, an undesirable outcome and needs to be resisted in various ways. Now, they um, say that, you know, this is perhaps not the best way to actually think about the dynamics of what neoliberalism and different forms of neoliberalism do in practice. Um, and they draw on the insights of um, different traditions of feminist scholarship, which um, rather than treating the public-private divide as a natural or uh, a straightforward division, uh, instead point out that this divide itself is a political and contested one that is often used to reproduce certain forms of hierarchy, to subjugate you know, women's concerns to the home, the domestic sphere, things like this, and is... Uh, ways of regulating sexual politics and freedom um, that is problematic. And so if we were to take the insights of that feminist scholarship, which says, you know, treat the public-private divide not as a given, but as a scene of contestation with historical variability um, and overlaid with power dynamics, and then say, well, what does it mean to think about the processes that neoliberalism deploys um, that are related to the private um, and how might those be different if we thought about it in this way? And, you know, both of their anthropologists um, with sort of critical uh, ethnographic training and work as well. So it's really incredible they're able to bring sort of that broader theoretical insight into the context of both, um, you know, workerist movements in India and China, respectively. Um, and there they show that um, the, the, their, you know, the idea of private, straightforward privatization is um, inadequate, I think, to account for the way in which neoliberalism helps destabilize boundaries, in particular because the mechanisms that are used in those contexts to, for example, disempower workers, create structures of private, of sort of uh, what they call profitization, actually, which I think is their key concept, which is most helpful within the economy, often rely on state funding of initiatives, state corporations, um, state passage of laws, and these sorts of things. And nevertheless, what is still happening um, uh, in those contexts is, is that the political dynamics are ones where, um, the goals of neoliberalism, you know, maybe redistribution, preserving wealth, hierarchy, things like this are being achieved, but through mechanisms that don't look like straightforward privatization. And so I think their analysis really helps us to understand that we need maybe more dynamic concepts to account for this work, to think about the ways in which, um, social reproduction is actually happening in different contexts. And so I think that, so that's sort of the critical intervention there that I see on the question of boundaries. In terms of the second part of the question, which where I would bring in Ballybar and the question of subjectivity is that, um, you know, Ballybar, I think suggests, and I think there's a point of contrast between his work and Brown and Fair's here, uh, that neoliberalism uh, is, is unique in uh, sort of its, as a form of capitalism in that it's, constantly pause it's a form of capitalism that comes after socialism and it itself is post-socialist um, and it imagines socialism as sort of including keynesianism and various other 
um, forms of political economy, but it imagines them as it's as that which it needs to dispose of, defeat, discredit, and then incorporate into its sphere. So it's constantly positing a socialist alternative as that which neoliberalism then will in turn incorporate and overcome. Um, and for Ballybar, that boundary between neoliberalism and socialism is also a fulcrum that could potentially be exploited or produced to sort of always try to reverse the developments of neoliberalism. You can always invoke a kind of socialism um, as a means of disputing or displacing neoliberalism, since neoliberalism, in his sense, can't really exist without this imagined adversary that it constantly names in order to try to undo. Um, and I think for him, that that plays out in a kind of uh, relationship to subjectivity as well, where neoliberalism is constantly trying to produce uh, a subject who is self-sufficient, rational, economically oriented, and nevertheless erasing or destroying the ground conditions um, for that kind of a subject to be able to actually live, survive, um, or, or, and um, you know, be even just materially sustainable. Um, I think there is a way in which Brown and Fair's contributions are less sort of sanguine in their expectation that there is an imminent alternative built into neoliberalism like, uh, you know, socialist political theory, and instead are more concerned about the ways in which neoliberalism as sort of an actually existing project in the world produces effects, um, and that the different subjects encounter those effects differently, and then their own subjectivity, their desires are shaped by um, neoliberal imperatives, but also reacting to those imperatives, and that this can produce a really complicated set of dynamics on the ground. You know, I think one point we described it as we live in a world of subjects who are uh, the product of neoliberalism, but who are nevertheless reacting against it and its effects in some ways, but that they might still um, desire or produce a kind of uh, nightmare world of, of greater neoliberalism. And that that is um, as realistic a possibility um, uh, as a sort of Bally Barr's potential imminent reversal of neoliberalism and a socialist future. Um I don't know. That was a, a little bit in a few different places. I don't know, Will, if you want to add to that at all. Or... Um, no, I think probably in the interest of time, I'll, I'll pass it back to Stephen. Okay, yeah. I just have one more question kind of to wrap this all up. And um, uh, So if it's true that neoliberalism, as we've been kind of talking about, is adapting and mutating to meet new challenges, um, anti-neoliberal and more broadly anti-capitalist critique needs to change in order to meet its new kind of values and ideas. Um, so how should anti-neoliberal discourse adapt to meet these new challenges and what sorts of theories, values, ideas, practices should be expressed and articulated in order to offer chance for some sort of alternative? So this is a, a really big question and a really important question. Um, I think that different chapters in the book approach this question in different ways. And I think that um, the answers to the question uh, depend and kind of need to depend on the context in which it's being asked and, and which actors are, um, are, are asking and responding to the question. And just to kind of uh, give an example of some of the sites in which the question is being and asked and answers are being articulated, um, at, as this book was kind of in the final phase of publication, there was an eruption of protests, uh, revolts, social movements, 
around the globe, including in uh, Ecuador, Chile, Colombia, uh, Haiti, Hong Kong, uh, Lebanon, Iraq, Iran, um, other places. And there was a lot of discussion about whether these revolts were properly understood as revolts against neoliberalism. Um, uh, I think that that's an interesting discussion. I think there are there's certainly a case to be made that um, that uh, many of them can be interpreted in this way. But just to kind of underscore the necessity of looking at different um, examples, cases, and actors, and uh, particularly um, social movements that are uh, responding to neoliberalism and seeking to um, offer an alternative. I thought I'd just look at kind of one such example. Uh, and and that's um, uh, Ecuador, uh, which is just one of those one of those sites I, I just described. And uh, several months ago, there were nationwide protests across the popular sectors, and these were headed by and kind of um, especially at the end, really led by the uh, indigenous movement in Ecuador, which uh, was against the austerity package imposed by the IMF always the IMF in South America, also in general, um, and by the government in cooperation with the IMF. And uh, of course, the, um, the indigenous movement has been organizing in Ecuador for decades and is a, is a huge um, political force there going back uh, to the 1990s um, before it came into tension with the pink tide because of um, extraction in indigenous territories. But the, the protests were so massive that the government had to escape the capital city of Quito and move to Guayaquil. And eventually uh, it suspended um, some of that, that package and the protests were a big success. But one interesting aspect of this development was that it was kickstarted because the government proposed to end gas subsidies, which would, uh, and this measure would of course hit the poorest communities the hardest. And um, eventually the protests were successful in, in pushing back this, this part of the package, the rise in gas prices, even if not all of the package. And what's interesting here is that in this case, and also in others, um, th- these measures, especially by so-called centrist governments, are justified in, in different ways over and over again. Um, uh, austerity uh, is is justified in terms of fiscal responsibility, but then with this kind of measure, it's justified in terms of uh, being green. And this, in in obvious ways, uh, has has a parallel to what happened with uh, the yellow vest protests in France, which were against uh, the the president Macron's uh, gas tax because this tax would hit the poorest communities, the hardest. And so I think that what you can see in, in, in these cases is an instance of mutant neoliberalism that's constantly kind of transforming and responding in, in different situations differently. In Ecuador, you're looking at uh, a very structural um, problem uh, of sovereign debt, state indebtedness because of um, the shape of the the neoliberal global economy in France, a somewhat different context. But in both of these cases, Lenin Moreno and Emmanuel Macron, 
You have kind of centrist governments, neoliberal governments that are proposing austerity measures and pushing neoliberalism in one way. And as we were already discussing earlier, we could also see mutant neoliberal projects being led by the far right. Before we were talking about Bolsonaro, we could also talk about um, about uh, Bolivia and um, Colombia. We could also, you know, come home to the United States. Look, look to many other places where far right movements, nationalism, and neoliberalism are coinciding. Um, I think some of the most prominent to, to begin to really answer your question. I think where some of the most promising movements to address and oppose these. Uh, uh, neoliberal mutants is around is around the issue of of climate. Um, uh, I think that there well, there's been a lot of really good books on on the subject recently, and we have some uh, prominent um, figures, and we have some radical social movements uh, that are uh, oriented and, and demanding a green new deal. Some of the books are a planet to win. Uh, Jeff Mann's work on on climate change has been really good. Um, And so part of what needs to be done is to develop a discourse uh, of and for a Green New Deal in the United States. There's kind of the early phases of developing that in the European Union, even though for reasons we discussed earlier, that's very difficult. And then ultimately, and obviously, a... uh, a green deal that is on the scale of the globe and that relates uh, kind of radical democratic movements to a more international scale. But I think that the kind of idea here is that as neoliberalism mutates, any anti-neoliberal project needs to go beyond mere kind of technocratic policy or short-term electoral strategy and needs to both develop a vision kind of based on the demands of uh, of different actors and to find its roots in the concrete struggles of, of social movements that are struggling around these issues. And another lesson perhaps is that these anti-liberal projects um, that are successful, I think, are not developing visions that are simply proposing to go back. They're not proposing to kind of turn back to, say, the, the post-war era, to um, the kind of Keynesian consensus or the the kind of uh, class compromise of the of the um, of the mid twentieth century. These are progressive ideas that are being developed in response to real existing uh, problems and with a vision of the future. And I think that's one. To just, you, you ask for some hope <laughs> for change. That's where I'd point. Um, and then at a at another level, um, I think that just with regard to this book. I think part of what the book is trying to do is to develop different modes of analysis to kind of carefully um, examine different sites of struggle so that we can think about uh, effective anti-neoliberal critique, but also kind of to really engage the transformations that, uh, that are unfolding very rapidly before our eyes. And one way that we need to do this um, is also in the domain of knowledge production and in uh, kind of uh, different ways that we should approach social analysis and political economy today. And I think that in this volume and beyond, um, I guess things can be learned, even if they simply 
can't be copied from the, what the neoliberal actors did so successfully. And I think there are interesting projects on the left that are being done um, in this light, which include the law and political economy project um, and others that are just combining interdisciplinary uh, resources to to craft a kind of project and uh, vision on the left um, that is very much kind of uh, forward-looking and future-oriented. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I'll, I think well covered a lot of ground there, so I might, I'll try to be brief in just adding a little bit. Um, I mean, I think the question is hard because I don't, I think the book is meant to sort of, or at least the way I see an academic scholarship often in general is meant to sort of lay out the conditions of possibility, um, for articulating these kinds of alternatives rather than sort of offering a ready-made answer. Cause I think that's one that has to be sort of produced through, um, as Will said, sort of communal social work, uh, and critical theorizing, and also just sort of, you know, um, collaborative uh, political projects. Um, and so I think what we're hoping to do is lay out the, the, the scene a bit more clearly for folks who are interested in kind of developing alternatives to neoliberalism, letting them, um, you know, think through the real challenges that are at stake, understand the dynamism of neoliberalism and all the sort of different planes of struggle on which they might need to meet it. Um, for me, I think in terms of my own thinking and work, one of, you know, uh, the biggest challenges I also continue to see is finding a way to effectively articulate the internationalist dimensions or, you know, global, however you want to think about it, of challenging neoliberalism. Um, Will mentioned a lot of different social movements, which I think you could describe them as more or less spontaneous, more or less organized um, in various ways that I think are, you know, essential and important. But at the same time, there's a question of how those movements um, find ways to forge and articulate a maybe shared set of values or forms of resistance that can really speak to disparities between the global north and the global south, the differential impacts of neoliberal political programs, um, you know, even the resurgence of democratic socialism as sort of a, a name or a signifier for anti-neoliberal projects, which, you know, true maybe to varying degrees in the global north, I think has um, not really, at least from my perspective, come up with compelling ways to understand the global dimensions of um, neoliberalism, foreign neoliberalism and its effects. Immigration is one area in particular where I think the left struggles to understand its own vision for internationalism, its own understanding of the forces driving migration and the dispossession of people across the world. And so I, I hope that that will be a scene where these movements can find ways to produce collective formations, identities. I mean, I look back personally to the, in some ways, the work of the new international economic order and also sort of post-imperial projects in the 1970s, um, both to learn from their failures, but also to think about ways in which that kind of collective project can be produced. Um, and then I think I'll close just very briefly with mentioning um, the observation of Stuart Hall, which we also close the introduction of the volume with, um, where he says that, one of the reasons neoliberalism was victorious in a way in its populist Thatcherite formation was not simply because it had, you know, X or Y, Z agenda or it exploited a crisis, but because it did articulate sort of deep root ideas and notions of freedom that spoke to the desires of certain contemporary subjects. And I think neoliberalism, too, is a threat and challenging in some ways because it does exploit 
the desires of contemporary subjects um, in a lot of ways, subjects who are the product of a world of uh, neoliberal doom with some way destruction and dispossession, but nevertheless, who are susceptible to further um, neoliberal sort of promotion and um, development. And I think that um, articulating a, a, ch- a genuinely challenged, uh, genuinely sort of oppositional notion of freedom and equality that is positive and um, um, able to compel the desires of subjects towards, you know, socialism or whatever other kind of name you want to use is a real challenge. And I think, as Will said, it's it's hard work to do. We can build on past traditions, but obviously the contemporary world is quite different from, you know, the post-war one, post-war settlement. Um, and we need to do that work. Um, and at the same time, you know, I think uh, meeting neoliberalism and all its planes of struggle also means meeting it in its specificity, um, challenging its you know, it's detailed uh, monetary and fiscal policy while also having social movement visions for freedom that are compelling, broad reaching, and does it say they're nationalist? And um, it's a tall order, um, but I think a necessary one if we're going to, if we're going to survive, uh, I think in some ways as a species um, in light of some of the existential crises that we're facing in the next, um, next century. So. Yeah. Thank you for all of that. We've, gotten a lot um so yeah that brings us to the end i would like to just say thank you to both of you for coming on and giving us all this you've given us a lot to think about thank you so much Stephen. we're really glad to talk with you